another episode of Neurotalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Ada Yee, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. Today, our guest is Margaret Livingstone, professor of neurobiology at Harvard University. We'll be speaking with her about monoamines regulating complex lobster behavior, lessons on vision from artists, and the joy of solving puzzles for a living. All of this and more coming up. We're here today with Margaret Livingstone, professor of neurobiology at Harvard University. Um, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Professor Livingstone. Sure. All right, so usually we like to start the show by asking a little bit about where you came from um, and just, you know, when you were a kid, did you find science interesting or did you have other interests? Well, when I was a kid, which was in the 50s, mm. science in school was just memorizing classes and phyla and stuff like that. I can remember having to memorize all those things. It wasn't interesting, but I know that I, there was stuff that I thought was interesting out in the real world that I used to kind of study on my own. So I had a bunch of roadkill <laughs> that, that I would soak in lye <laughs> try to get the skeletons out of these things that I found and we were in, in pretty rural areas in the south so there was a lot of roadkill so you were interested it seemed like you were interested in biology and just like how things worked inside yes. a little bit yes but it, it, it wasn't it, what they had in school wasn't really any good so I didn't actually know that was biology mm-hmm and, and at what point did you realize that this was something that you could study in school eventually? Till I was halfway through college. Not even, no, even ha- halfway through medical school. Mm-hmm. I just, I became an engineer. I mm-hmm. studied engineering for a while because I thought that that would be a good way to be able to earn a living. Mm-hmm. When I was young, uh, women didn't aspire to careers very much. I see. And I was pretty sure I was going to need a career because I wasn't all that good with boys. So so I thought I should go into engineering because I was pretty sure I could get a job that way. I see. And then I studied engineering, which I didn't much like it. Uh And then I decided I wanted to go to medical school Mm because that seemed like another way you could have a job. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered science. And and how did that come about? Did you, how did you come into realizing you could do research or... Well, I, uh, I got interested in how things can go wrong with people's brains by working in a, me- in a mental hospital. Mm-hmm. It, it, it did some rotations in medical school, and I worked in a, in a, um, in a mental hospital one summer. Mm-hmm. And it became very clear that there are people who have a screw loose. Mm-hmm. There's something really organically wrong with them. Mm-hmm. And I got interested in that. That was back when... The idea that, that schizophrenia mm-hmm. was a, a defect in monoamines was just starting to come out. There was all this interesting stuff about how people who took dopamine for for Parkinson's started getting psychosis and how people who took dopamine blockers uh, got Parkinsonian mm-hmm. and that maybe there was abnormalities in dopamine metabolism in people with schizophrenia. So I got all interested in monoamines and mm-hmm decided I was I would try to make monoamine inhibitors that were very specific <laughs> that would somehow distinguish between serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine. So it sounded like your experience in medical school was that you got interested in these the mechanisms maybe that were underlying some of these diseases that you were seeing. And so is it at that point that you decided to join a lab and do your PhD? 
yeah, I went into the pharmacology department uh-huh. and tried to make monoamines for a year and basically just sort of blew a few things up. And, <laughs> and then I, then I uh, found Ed Kravitz was working on monoamines in lobsters and doing physiology and stuff. Right. And so, yeah, so, we, so he said I could work in his lab. Back then you didn't apply to a department, you just right. applied to a lab. Right. And Ed Kravitz himself is, is known very much for some of his seminal work showing that compounds, monomines, um, also uh, compounds such as GABA act as neurotransmitters. Um, but by the time you got there, he was getting interested in some neuromodulators such as serotonin. Can you tell us uh, about the first experiments you did with this compound, um, as you say, <laughs> in lobsters? Yeah, my job, well, we use lobsters because they have these big neurons. Right. And my job was to find out, he already, he was working on octopamine, and he knew where octopamine was made, mm -hmm. but he didn't know where serotonin was made in the lobster. So that was my job, was to dissect out different parts of the lobster nervous system and figure out where the serotonin was made. And I would do this by incubating bits of tissue in radioactive tryptophan, and then running them out on these huge pieces of paper with uh -huh. a huge electric field and then cutting up the piece of paper and measuring where the serotonin got made. So this sounds more like a biochemical type uh, analysis. I know. But see, I wanted to know what, what serotonin and octopamine did for the lobster. Right. Because I'd gotten interested in all these schizophrenic patients. Mm -hmm. So I asked Ed if I could just try injecting some into a lobster. Mm -hmm. and he said no. <laughs> lobster, it'll just make the lobster contract because he'd been looking at the this muscle, the, the lobster claw muscle, the thumb muscle, mm -hmm. and all the amines just made it contract. Mm -hmm. And I thought that, I didn't, I thought it might be more interesting than that. So he always took his lab to Woods Hole every summer. Right. And so I went down to Woods Hole with him one summer, the whole lab, mm -hmm. and there were a whole bunch of lobsters down there because a whole bunch of labs work on lobsters so right. somebody let me have six lobsters uh -huh. and I put yellow bands on three of them and red bands on three of them uh -huh. and then injected them with some serotonin or some octopamine dissolved in seawater uh -huh. and the ones that I injected with octopamine all went like this so we're on the podcast here so they reached out or they basically got into an active they position bowed. yeah bowed down uh -huh. and then the ones that I injected with serotonin did this uh -huh. And they stood up high and and looked really tall and strong. Uh -huh. and, and I actually knew that they were the aggressive and submissive postures of mm -hmm. lobsters because I actually knew something about lobster behavior. But you just had to look at them. One of them was bowing low and the other one was standing mm -hmm. tall and aggressive. And very dramatic, I guess. Like yeah. a very kind of a complex, what people might think was a really complex behavior. Just yeah, by except they were frozen. That way. Yeah. They weren't acting. Anyway, they were just frozen in mm -hmm. these stereotyped aggressive and submissive postures. So I went and got Ed, and he got all excited. Mm -hmm. It said, fantastic. Let's let Ron Harris Warwick figure out why. Because <laughs> Ron Harris Warwick was a physiologist, a postdoc in Ed's lab. I said, well, I can't figure out why. <laughs> Yourself. <laughs> yeah. said, no, I was a neurochemist by then. Mm -hmm. See, So I was supposed to be doing neurochemistry, not neurophysiology. And I wanted to do neurophysiology, and he wouldn't let me. So Ron worked on this for about a year, sticking electrodes in ganglia. And mm -hmm. Some cells fired more and some cells fired less, and they didn't get anywhere with that. And mm -hmm. so I had read a bunch of this really old literature about command circuits in... Um, 
I don't know if they were, yeah, I think command circuits in crustacea. Mm -hmm. There's like a very old literature on this. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the extensors go out one nerve root and the flexors go out a different nerve root. Mm -hmm. And so I got hold of an old EEG machine from one of the retiring physiology professors here and got a lobster and put some suction electrodes on one root and suction electrodes on another root. And, you know, it was like a paper with mm -hmm. the ink that, that the result came out as. You know, it wasn't real electrophysiology, but you could still see the trace getting thicker. Not, and when I put serotonin on, the, the flexor root got, the trace got thick. And then when I put octopamine on, the opposite root got. So it was clearly a difference in a whole command circuit. So Ed finally let me <laughs> join Ron working on his physiology rig. Mm -hmm. and, we finally, and we did a nice little paper on the command circuits that were modulated by monoamines. That's sort of like moods, you know? Yeah. Moods activate a whole bunch of things like mm -hmm. that. It's a very complex response to a single Yeah, Yeah. But there's a... Yeah, And so I love the story of you just going and grabbing that EEG because of your desire to, to, to understand on a neurophysiological level um, this behavior that you observed. Um, because for your postdoc, you made a big jump um, away from lobsters and crustaceans to the lab of uh, David Hubel, who was studying as many people know. No, you know, missed one. I missed one. So yes. there was another... Uh, I, went, I went and worked on fruit flies. Oh, really? And what what prompted that? Monoamines. I thought that, that I was... That was when Eric Kendell and Jimmy Schwartz were looking at serotonin and um, maybe dopamine in aplesia. Mm -hmm. And it was just starting to come out the idea that, that reward, reward hormones, neurohormones could modulate learning. Uh -huh. And you know that was how you could reinforce a, a synapse that did something good, right? Mm -hmm. And Chip, had, Chip Quinn at Princeton had these fruit flies that he'd, he'd started in Seymour Benzer's lab that either couldn't learn or forgot fast. Mm -hmm. And so I asked, he came and gave the lunch seminar in our department, and I was all excited. I said, oh, that's fantastic. Do any of them affect monoamines? And he said he didn't know. Nobody'd done that. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to do a postdoc with him and see if any of those learning mutants affected affected. Uh, monoamine or second messenger pathways mm -hmm. and what and did they you did uh -huh. <laughs> they did so somebody else figured out duncan byers figured out that one of the dumb mutants affected the degradation of cyclic amp mm -hmm. and then i figured out that another dumb mutant uh, affected a calcium-dependent adenylate cyclase, mm -hmm. and that mutants that couldn't make dopamine were stupid. <laughs> I guess this is kind of, this is really the early days of understanding that, you know, any kind of Yeah, yeah I'm basis. very old. <laughs> I was, I remember when people didn't understand any of this stuff. There didn't used to be undergraduate majors in neuroscience. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't a discipline. <laughs> no, it was not a discipline. Yeah. Absolutely not. You yeah. sort of had to stumble into it by uh -huh. accident. Um, but so from that uh, experience... So David Hubel and I had got to talking when I was still at Harvard about right. modulating his kind of circuit. So he had a really nice circuit, right? And you'd think it would get modulated by monoamines. So I, I had convinced him that that would be a cool thing to do. So after my first postdoc, I came back to Harvard, and mm -hmm. David and I 
tried to look at the modulation of the visual cortex. We thought we would squirt um, norepinephrine on visual cortex, mm -hmm. but we didn't know how to do that. Right. So instead, we we um, we stimulated a, a ganglion, the, the locus ceruleus, that squirts, that sort of automatically squirts uh, norepinephrine all over the cortex. Uh-huh. And so we had this electrode in the locus ceruleus, and we were recording away from an anesthetized cat, and we'd stimulate the locus ceruleus, and the EEG would go flat. Mm -hmm. And every time the EEG went flat, the signals in the visual cortex got much cleaner. Mm -hmm. We finally figured out that what was going on was that the brain was waking and sleeping. Right. This, that's what the locus ceruleus does. Right. Some of this attention literature is yeah, now what exactly. we call it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were like, <laughs> as far as we were concerned, wake that attention is just a very mild form of being awake. Exactly. As opposed to being asleep. But when the animal was asleep, they'd had these big noisy PGO waves that uh -huh. would interrupt the, the signals. And so it was like when you were awake, the signal, the noise was better simply because there was less noise, not because there was a better signal. Uh-huh, right. And can I just pause for a minute and ask you, because uh, I think not too long ago when Professor Hubel passed away and you wrote a beautiful piece about your experience of working with him. Can you maybe just talk a little bit about, you know, what it was like to, to work with David Hubel and um, apparently it sounds like he was very much an experimentalist. He loved to be in the lab and be doing his own experiments. Yeah, it was kind of news to me that most PIs don't. <laughs> I mean, I still love to be in the lab. Right. I, I was scanning a monkey, not yesterday, but the day before yesterday. Sunday, that's when we get good scan times. <laughs> yeah, I love working in the lab. And David loved working in the lab. And he loved figuring out how stuff works. Figuring out how stuff works is so much fun. I, it dawned on me the other day when I looked up after three hours of trying to figure out why some code wasn't giving me a result that I wanted, mm -hmm. that there are people who like go to the newspaper every day and find a puzzle to solve that's completely meaningless and useless. Whereas every day I get to solve a puzzle that, that might lead to understanding something that nobody understood before. Right. It's just so much fun. And David loved doing that too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It really is a privilege to be able to do that. Oh, no kidding. And you actually get a living wage doing <laughs> which other people regard as a high. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I, also to talk about some other works, you, you mentioned this norepinephrine work that you did in the Hubo lab. Um, but also you had some very seminal work uh, describing a color selectivity pathway in V1. And I just wanted to ask a little bit about that and uh, what prompted you guys to look for this. We, almost nothing I've studied I have ever directly gone after. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> it, it's always just some weird, silly accident that gets mm -hmm. you there. Mm -hmm. David and I were, what were we doing? Oh, we had developed a, a double-label deoxyglucose technique that right. would allow us to look at two... Uh, parameters independently, two different stimulation conditions independently. Mm -hmm. And so I was living in a, in a house with Charlie Gilbert and Mary Kennedy and David Furster. Mm -hmm. And we were sitting in Charlie's lab. Charlie worked with Torsten Weasel. And we saw these slides sitting on the bench that had clear ocular dominance stripes in them. And I asked, how come? You know, what did they do to get those beautiful ocular dominance stripes? And they said, Charlie said they didn't. It was actually just a horseradish peroxidase stain. Mm -hmm. 
And so I told David about this because I thought it was might be really useful. And he remembered that Margaret Wong Riley had been staining for this enzyme cytochrome oxidase, which turned out to be have the same kind of substrate as HRP. Right. And so we were using the cytochrome oxidase stain, and David had got his graduate student, Jonathan Horton, to section some some monkey brains, mm -hmm. and he saw these little round things in them. And so David and I were going to try out our double-label 2-deoxyglucose on these things. Mm -hmm. And every time we used it, the blobs just lit up. They lit up to everything. It, it couldn't distinguish one orientation from another, which was mm -hmm. very disappointing and confusing. And we decided to just stick an electrode in and go through the cortex and see what the heck these things were for. Mm -hmm. And that's what we were doing. And the reason we discovered color is because David always said, if it won't respond to a white bar, try black. And if it won't respond to black, try red. Mm -hmm. That was just his, empirically, he had observed that that was the hierarchy yeah. of things that you try, right? Yeah. And so uh, some cells were just went berserk with red and didn't care about black or white. And then, of course, you know, we tried the Kodachrome box, which is always bright yellow. And mm -hmm. I really loved reading those papers because it's very much telling the story a little bit. I think like kind of in the opening of the results of one of your... Journal of Neuroscience papers, we were describing this, you guys write that, that those blobs had, had been described, or maybe you guys had found yourselves that they had lousy orientation. Oh, they were um, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> David would struggle trying to get the, get the thing to respond. It just didn't care. We finally decided to go with it, you know? Lots of times, most of the stuff I've just discovered, yeah. it's so strong you're sort of forced to accept it and go with it. And it, it usually wasn't at all what you expected. Mm -hmm. But because it's so dramatic, you just have to believe it. You don't need statistics or anything to, mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to realize that it's there. I, right. That's the kind of results I like. I hate statistics. <laughs> so I want to move a little bit into, so obviously you have your own lab at Harvard, have for uh, a while now, um, and where you continued working on, like... <laughs> Probably had my own labs <laughs> before you were born. <laughs> Um, and uh, in your lab, you've been working to understand basic mechanisms of primate vision, um, as well as branching into a bunch of really fascinating topics such as face perception um, and even more recently, vision and how it interacts with art and how perception might actually affect our, our, our understanding or, you know, reactions to art. No, 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 no. no, no. no. How would you re-describe it? I have discovered, you know how sometimes you try to make a figure to illustrate a principle that you've discovered? Sure. Well, it turns out that artists have been figuring stuff out about how we see for a really long time, and they are very good at it. Right. So I think they've made discoveries that, as a vision scientist, I pay attention to. And a lot of their discoveries have to do with how different ways we process color. And so I used to use works of art in my talk. Mm -hmm. to illustrate principles mm -hmm. so that so I wasn't trying to figure out art at mm -hmm. all I was taking advantage of what they figured out sure and they're smart and and I mean actually that was one of the things I kind of wanted to ask I mean when you you talk probably with a lot of artists I mean and and what's that exchange like when you describe you know your understanding of, of perception in art do they often say oh yeah of course or is it yes, is it a lot of do often say yes of course but what they haven't realized often is which principles they can link together 
I so see. one of the one of the commonalities between what I do and what artists do is that there's this weird thing that happens at equal value. Artists mm -hmm. call it equal value. Psychologists call it equal luminance. Mm -hmm. You know the weird shimmery colors you can get that that look very strange and have right. a vibrant quality. Artists know about that. They spend a whole year learning how to recognize equal value mm -hmm. because it has these weird properties. Mm -hmm. And I can talk to them about why it has these weird properties, which has to do with the fact that there's a whole part of our visual system that's colorblind. Mm -hmm. So if, if part of your visual system isn't responding to an image, it's mm -hmm. going to look weird. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they enjoy knowing what the different things are that, that happen at equal value. Mm -hmm. And then I like talking to them because they have insights about how we see. Mm -hmm. Right. And you've actually written a book about all of these things. Um, in 2002, you wrote Vision and Art, The Biology of Seeing. And I think in there you basically go through, you know, many famous works of art um, and think about the perceptual basis of, you know, how this art affects us. So one of the big examples you have is this uh, Mona Lisa smile and how dynamic it seems. Um, well, first I wanted to ask, why did you decide to, you know, undertake writing a book that's, you know, aimed at a general audience, not just for scientists or not just for artists, I guess, or maybe for everyone? Well, by then I'd collected a whole bunch of examples mm -hmm. of how um, artists have developed techniques based on fundamental principles of neuroscience. And, and I, I think I wrote a Scientific American article about it. Mm -hmm. And... I used to keep getting these requests for review from the Lancet, of all places, mm -hmm. uh, by physicians who were writing articles about art and vision, mm -hmm. and they were uniformly awful. <laughs> and I, f I finally got annoyed enough that I just decided I'd write a really long mm -hmm. art. Well, I didn't mean for it to be really long. I was just starting, I had it even more than I'd collected in this old Scientific American article. And I just started putting them all together, and it kept getting longer and longer and longer, and it mm -hmm. turned into a book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't mean to write a book. <laughs> it just, <laughs> there was one there. <laughs> and one, uh, let's go back to this Mona Lisa's uh, changing smile. Um, maybe can you describe for us what your thought is on this? So First, I have to tell you how I got there. Yeah, sure. So I was Please writing do. this book, right? And yeah. I'd sent all this stuff to Abrams Press. Yeah. And I, I somehow I could think I went had a meeting in New York with the editor, Eric Eric Himmel. Mm -hmm. And he said that it was obvious I knew a lot about vision, mm -hmm. but it was equally obvious I knew nothing about art. And he told <laughs> me if I was gonna write this book I had to read a book about art history history. Mm -hmm. So I did. And I read Gombrich, which is a very good book. Mm -hmm. And Gombrich says, he's got this beautiful reproduction of the Mona Lisa, and he says, now look at it as if you've never looked at it before. I know you've seen it in mm -hmm. postcards and with a mustache, but just look at it and realize why this is such a famous painting. Mm -hmm. And so I did. Mm -hmm. And yes, her expression changes really dramatically. Mm -hmm. But being a vision scientist, I noticed that it wasn't ambiguity that... Mm -hmm led to this variability in her expression it was where I was looking mm -hmm. so I filtered it in such a way that you could see what it looked like to your peripheral vision versus your central vision it was perfectly obvious that her smile was present all in the low spatial frequencies so sorry just to parse it out a little bit so per peripheral vision versus uh sorry central, central vision your central vision is much higher acuity mm -hmm. It can see fine details, mm -hmm. but it's actually quite bad. Your peripheral vision is much better than your central vision at seeing big blurry things. Mm -hmm. And so those are the low spatial frequencies. That's low spatial frequencies. And then the 
the central vision is seeing more high spatial frequency. And so if you just yeah. divide out the painting into low versus high, the shape of the mouth is actually... You can do an Adobe Photoshop. <laughs> uh, just exactly how I did it. Uh-huh. And you see very much, it's very, um, I encourage our audience to go look at some of these uh, pictures, these Photoshop divisions of the painting, and you can really see that in these fuzzy tones or frequencies. Yeah, that's where it's my, it's not ambiguity at all, which is yeah. what all the art historians kept saying. It's, it's yeah. something really silly and low level. And very concrete in a way. But that's the way I think. <laughs> but maybe that's just how things break down in the end. So, I'm, <laughs> I'm quite a reductionist. <laughs> uh, and actually, you said for a lot, you have a lot of other examples of art where actually the fact that we're not actually, we feel that we're taking in the entire piece of art at the same time, but real vision, you know, forces us to look at different points at different times. Can you get, kind of explain that a little bit more? Well, pointless. Yeah. So the pointless have these really sparkly paintings, right? right. They have a vibrancy. And the pointless themselves thought it was because they were engaging in additive color mixing. Mm-hmm. That is, all the little dots add the reflectances, not when you mix two paints on a palette, you're mm-hmm. adding the absorbances. Mm-hmm. But magazine illustrations are made up of little dots, right? Mm-hmm. And there's nothing special about the colors in a magazine illustration. Right. But there is something special about a, a pointless painting, and I think it is the vibrancy that comes from the thing changes every time you move your eyes, because your central mm-hmm. vision sees the dots, your peripheral vision fuses the dots. Mm-hmm. And so as you move your eyes constantly, so it just it, it imposes a dynamic quality on a static image. And I think that's why many of these works of art were so special, is because they come across as very dynamic. Mm-hmm. And before the age of computers, a work of art that was dynamic was something really special. Right. Um, I also want to talk about another uh, idea you've had um, or study that you actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine suggesting that um, depth perception, which is another you know, uh, aspect of vision that you've studied um, on a very basic level, um, might actually be linked with uh, dyslexia and also, on the flip side, maybe a talent for art. Can you explain about that? So David Hubel and I spent a lot of time fiddling around with everything that can change at equal value because we realized that the dorsal stream was colorblind, the the wear system, the whole parietal system is probably colorblind. So we were using equal value to dissect out what different parts of your visual system do. Mm-hmm. And it's perfectly obvious that equal value writing is very hard to read. Mm -hmm. It jumps around, it jitters, and it has a kind of a nasty quality. That's what Joseph Albers calls it. So by, sorry, by equal value, you mean like very similar colors, equal brightness or? Equal brightness. So you can have a bright red on a bright green and it shimmers, it vibrates. Mm -hmm. I can't think of anything famous that you can show people or get them to look at. They have to go to Wired magazine and <laughs> find one of those headlines that got these two jumpy, jittery, mm-hmm. two colors that, that jump out at you. It'll, mm-hmm. I guarantee you it'll be equal value. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we were doing that, and I kind of remembered that people with dys- – I read a Time magazine article or about dyslexia. Mm-hmm. And I remembered that they complain that ordinary text, black and white text, has a jumpy, jittery, nasty quality. They don't mm-hmm. like looking at it. And I thought, well, that's just like what we feel about equal value text. Mm-hmm. And so I got together with a, with a neurologist, Al Galiberta, and we um, did some experiments with people with dyslexia and found that they had a different timing in their, their uh, 
magnostream, their dorsal stream. Mm -hmm. And in the process of this study, I was privileged to meet a large number of people with dyslexia. And it was inescapable mm -hmm. that many of them were quite good artists, musicians, computer programmers, or actors. Mm -hmm. And I began to think that there may be something about dyslexia that predisposes them to this talent. Now, it, it's been documented previously that, that artists are overrepresented, that dyslexics are overrepresented in the artistic population. But mm -hmm. the usual explanation is they were no good at academic subjects, so they spent all their time in the art room. But I entertained the possibility that maybe there's something about dyslexia that makes them better at art. Mm -hmm. And so you can explain the music by the fact that it, a timing difference in the, in the fast subdivision of the auditory system may make you bad at phonetics, because mm -hmm. that's a very fast auditory transition. But it might make you very good at music. Because if you're bad at the fast stuff, you may be better at the slower stuff. And music, no matter how fast it is, is a slow auditory transition compared to phonetics. But in art, what about the idea that poor depth perception might make you good at flattening the world on a piece of paper? Because mm -hmm. I can't, you can't, you don't have access to the original retinal image. Mm -hmm. You've extracted a bunch of information and you can't get past it. That's, mm -hmm. why, pe that's why it's hard to draw is because you've extracted information and turned it into useful information. Mm -hmm. And so you can't get back to that original retinal image. But maybe if you already see the world as flat, you don't have as much trouble flattening things. I mean, one thing you've written is that when we look at the world, um, we gather cues that are actually, you know, muscle cues from our eyes, basically the moving around, like we were referring to earlier, when you look at a picture, you don't actually, we have this experience of seeing the whole thing, but actually we're moving from point to yep, point. Exactly. And that's one of the pieces of information we use to understand depth. But if you don't have that ability to move your eyes in a coordinated way and understand all of those muscle cues, you don't have that information when you go back to draw something. Well, actually, it's stereopsis per se, which is the difference in the images in the two eyes. I you don't see. have to move your eyes to get stereo. It, it, it happens automatically. But 10% of otherwise normal people don't have stereopsis. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of a funny ability if its deficit is that common. Mm -hmm. And yet, and so it turns out that poor stereopsis is very common in artists. Mm -hmm. And what's the first thing you learn in art school? Close one eye. Um, and you actually did this this wonderful study where you actually looked at um, pictures of Rembrandt, and you were mm. looking at the skin. That's design. because I was at, I was thinking about the dyslexia bit, and I was at the Louvre. Yeah. And there's one room that's got a little tiny room. It's got one Rembrandt self portrait, and mm -hmm. that's all on mm -hmm. each of the four walls. And in every single one of them, one eye is looking straight ahead, and the other eye is looking off to the side. Mm -hmm. It was inescapable. And so I had all these reproductions of Rembrandt self-portraits on my desk, and my student, Bevel Conway, came into my office and said, that's cool. Is it always the same eye? And I said, no. If it were the same eye, I could publish it. <laughs> and then it turned out that in the paintings, it always was one eye. In the etchings, it was always the opposite eye. And Bevel, who is himself a stereo-blind artist, mm -hmm. said, Marge, you have to separate the paintings and the etchings. So when we did... It became clear, you know, in an etching, you scratch it on a plate, you flip it over. So that's why it was reversed. So it wasn't a trope. He wasn't trying to have one eye look off to the side. Mm -hmm. He was just, just 
drawn what he saw. <laughs> one of his eyes <laughs> off to the side. This is the way the art was done. It's wonderful because in listening to all your work, it sounds like, you know, a large component of, of your work is staying in the lab and really getting down and dirty with the experiments. But a large component also has been talking to other people and, and just noticing things about, you know, dyslexics or artists and, and what they have to say. I think that's a really... Yeah, uh, I think it helps that my brain works in a slightly different way than <laughs> most people, and I'm, I'm not sure why. <laughs> um. I want to jump a little bit away from your science um, just for fun. I wanted to ask, um, so you're actually the second guest on our podcast to have been a judge on the, ti- on the Chinese TV show called The Brain. Um, along with oh, that was so movie. cool. <laughs> uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up being a judge on this TV show um, and what exactly that entailed? Well, Bob Desimone got me into this. Mm-hmm. He and I don't. He told me, I asked him how he got involved. He's apparently been on there multiple times. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember how he got involved in it. I guess he was collaborating with somebody who was himself um, a Chinese person who was already a judge on the show or involved in it. It's very Mm -hmm. big in China. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's fantastic that they have contests for brainy things (laughs) instead of contests for people bashing each other in the head. I mean, really, it's so much more. I I don't like watching people bash each other on the head, but I really enjoy uh, watching people do memory contests. That was fun. My favorite guy won, too. There was this guy who did bl- blindfolded Rubik's Cubes. Wow. <laughs> How cool is that? <laughs> he looks at a Rubik's Cube, thinks about it, <laughs> and then bl- gets blindfolded and then does it. Did you ask him at all what his, does he have a technique? Yes. Oh, yes. I had a long conversation with him. So it turns out, you know how, do you know how to solve a Rubik's Cube? No idea. Oh, yeah. There's an algorithm. So if you ask a computer to solve a Rubik's Cube, it can uh. do it in about eight eight moves, right? But each move is um, very complicated in terms of what it manages to accomplish. Mm-hmm. The people, humans who are really fast at Rubik's Cubes, have these algorithms. If you want to move a blue thing from the front face to the top face, you mm-hmm. do two things, right? And then you move the green thing over there, right? So there are, there are straightforward algorithms for how you move different corners to the to the same colored face so what this guy does is he memorizes the sequence that he's gonna do and it's you know 12 18 moves Uh and he uses um memory techniques to remember what those moves are but it's still very impressive (laughs) do you do do puzzles in your free time at all yourself no i get to do science i don't have (laughs) to do right i mean that's what i think science is is just solving puzzles. Really, really good puzzles, too. Right. Um, So on that note, I was wondering if you could just give us a quick preview of uh, your upcoming talk here at Stanford. Sure. All right. So you have specialized domains in your temporal lobe for recognizing faces, Mm -hmm. and most humans do. You also have specialized domains for recognizing text Mm -hmm. and places, things that you're really good at. You have developed these domains for, and I want to talk about why we have these domains and how Mm -hmm. we get them. And monkeys have them, too, which is how come you can study them at a uh, level that we can't study in humans. Right. All right. Well, we really look forward to... uh, hearing about that. Um, All right, so usually we like to close with um, what we call our rapid-fire questions. So these should be very brief and very fun. Just answer with whatever is on the top of your head. 
All right. So the first question is: If you could go back in time and speak to yourself, Margaret, as a graduate student, is there any advice that you would give yourself? Well, that's presuming I do something different. <laughs> and most of the things that I wish had been done different to me as a graduate student,、mm -hmm. I don't think I could change. And largely, it had to do with being a woman in science、mm -hmm. a long time ago.、Mm -hmm. And I just didn't have the power to do things the way I wanted to do them,、mm -hmm. and I don't think I would have, no matter who had told me、mm -hmm. what to do. It's sad.、Mm -hmm. Do you think things have、uh, changed for women in science, or a lot of progress has been made? Well, in that there actually are a few women in science, yes.、Mm -hmm. But I still think the culture—I think it's going to change. But、mm -hmm. we're we're actually at this point behind industry, some industries.、Okay. Because I think that a lot of the culture of science is competition-based,、mm -hmm. and that favors men who like to be competitive.、Mm -hmm. Women don't like to be competitive as much as men do.、Mm -hmm. But I don't think competition is necessarily good for science. I think a lot more cooperation and collaboration and interaction would improve、mm -hmm. the pace of science. That's a really wonderful observation.、Um, If you could meet any scientist from any other time in history, who would you meet? You know, it's funny. I'm not much of a meter of other scientists.、Mm -hmm. I just like, I tend to remember results, not people. And so you can read about people's results. I, you know, who I really like reading,、mm -hmm. who I find fascinating, is Isaac Newton. Really? Yeah. Well, I read his、um, book Optics. Ah, right. And he talks about. How when you split the light, white light, into the spectrum,、uh -huh. and you get like a beam, you can isolate a beam of one color light. He talks about everything he could think of to do to that beam to put it back into being white light or to change it to another color. And I just、mm -hmm. love the idea of trying everything he could think of <laughs> to get this orange light to do something else. Do you remember any particular strange ones? Strange. Well, I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, I mean,、mm -hmm. he figured out he could change white light into a spectrum, and then、right. he got himself orange light, and、uh -huh. he could mix it with other lights,、uh -huh. but he couldn't get orange light to change into anything else.、Hmm. I love that. <laughs> Recommended read then. Yes, very much so. <laughs> All right, and then the last question is: If you could pick one other topic in the world to study, whether that be a topic in science or outside of science, what would you pick? Ooh, anthropology. Ooh, and why that? Well, I guess I like figuring out how we got the way we are. And if you、mm -hmm. can't study the brain, you might as well study human history. Right, and other people. Yeah.、Um, all right, great. Those are three really great answers.、Um, thank you so much again for speaking with me today. Sure, it was fun. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Olaf Sporns, professor in psychological and brain sciences at Indiana University. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Luis Giam, Eddie Alberon, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, Jordan Sorkin, Sharon Liu, and myself, Ada Yee. Adam Fuchsel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience, by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org. 
spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. You can also follow Neurite West on Twitter using our handle at Stanford Neuro. This is Neurotalk, and I'm meeting you.